as we know, medicine's quite good at um, mapping bits of us, uh, the genome, uh, neural pathways. As T.S. Eliot said, the circulation of the lymph. But we're not perhaps particularly good at mapping as one of the characters in our next speaker's uh, book writes, uh, what's under the skin. Remember, she says, people are blind to what's under your skin. So our next speaker, Ema McBride, trained at drama school uh, in London. Her debut novel, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, uh, received the Goldsmiths Prize, the Bailey's uh, Women's Prize for Fiction, and the Irish Novel of the Year Award. And her most recent novel, The Lesser Bohemians, won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize. It's, both books were widely applauded, really, for what they did to the novel and how it remade the form of the novel to just do that, to look inside us. So it's a great uh, uh, privilege um, to welcome Ema McBride to the stage. Thank you. I mean, I was just thinking about this, and in fact, how extraordinary it is that the simple fact of some um, black marks on a white page uh, reveal stuff about us. Yeah, well, I think um, for a writer, that's all you have. So <laughs> if you try and make it work in a different way, then you realize quite quickly it can affect people rather strongly, much more than you would expect, I think. And you have done that, though. Uh, you've, you've, you've taken the words on the page and, I imagine, weren't satisfied with the conventional form of a novel, or rather wanted to do something different with it, to say what you wanted to say. Yeah, well, um, I think... You know, they often say that you write the book that you can't find to read. And... Um, I was really interested in trying to find a different angle to start from, a different narrative perspective, um, because it seemed to me, and that this was something that I got from Joyce, the idea that there is a part of human life that isn't adequ adequately described in language, and certainly not in linear sentences, certainly not in straightforward plot-driven narratives. And I wanted to find a way to, to capture that, and in order to do that, I realized that actual linear sentences weren't enough, couldn't do enough, couldn't carry enough weight, couldn't capture enough. Um, because the mind and the body work so much uh, more quickly than grammatical language does. So by the time you know, it takes you to construct a sentence that says, I went downstairs, you've already gone down the stairs, seen the light, thought about the colour of the paint on the wall, felt the scratch on your back, smelled the dinner that's cooking in the room across. All of those things are all happening, but if you're trying to describe all of that at once in, in, linear, in linear language, that just is agonising. And we don't think, in we don't speak in linear sentences. No. So listening <clears throat> to you then, yeah. and I did this a couple of years ago, I tried to, I was listening to people talking to me in consultations just to, and hearing them, I missed everything they were telling me, so I had to stop doing it. <laughs> Bec because you were, but you were, there were, I'm doing what I'm doing now. There are pauses and lilts and rhythm, and, and people are looping in and out of things. And that's even, that's just spoken language, let alone what's happening synchronously yeah. all the time 
in yeah. my head. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and this is the point, that it wasn't just about a stream of consciousness. It wasn't just about the thoughts that are running through the head, but actually trying to capture the experience of the body at the same time. And how the experience of the body is influencing the, the experience of the mind as well. That phrase, stream of consciousness, is used a lot. Uh, and that's a, so that's a modernist term, isn't it? That's a, yeah. what, so time of Joyce, Virginia Woolf, yeah. T.S. Eliot. Yeah. And what does it mean? What does stream of consciousness actually mean as a phrase? Well, I mean, it was a technique evolved by uh, Dorothy Richardson, who was never credited with this. Mm. Um, that's interesting. Which was about <laughs> trying to capture, to naturalistically capture the flow of thought through the mind and the flow of impression. Um, and it was, you know, one of the most important parts of, of modernism because it was a way of making the idea of what you were looking at and how you were looking at it combine to give the to bring the the reader or the viewer to a much more intimate experience of what they were reading or what they were looking at, and that was, you know, one of the driving parts of mo modernism was to bring was to bring the audience or the the reader, the viewer closer to the to the experience. And so what I've been trying to do is really take it one step further again, one mm. step further in from consciousness. To what? What's that point? Well, I mean, I have to try and make up my own name. So I, the, mm. I, at the moment, I sort of call it stream of existence because it's really about trying to capture everything that's happening within the person and around them and how they're perceiving what's happening around them and how all of those things are interacting all in one moment. So at the moment, what, at, at the point of thought almost, or even pre-thought, or yeah. all the thoughts. Yeah, well, almost at the moment of, of once, the, once life hits, hits the human. And the minute that there's a reaction, the minute you are changed by something that is happening in the world around you, and how what your, everything gears into action, what happens in thought, in body, in emotion, everything all happening at once. Why do you want to do that? What's interesting about doing that rather than Mrs. Jones said to Dr. Gugani, da da da? Um, I think because, I mean, because I think the human experience is being intellectualized mm. out of existence, actually. <laughs> and that the experience of the body is something that has been demeaned tremendously in favor of the experience of the mind, as though somehow the experience of the mind is a much more valid, right. um, an important part of life than the life of the body, whereas, of course, you know, one can't go without the other. So you're trying to get at the experience of the body, the visceral, so, the yeah, visceral. Yeah, I'm really trying to get the experience of the body, and particularly the female body, which mm. I think, you know, and this is also the idea of, of trying to make language describe parts of life that haven't, that aren't adequately described because you know everything about every, every you know the way we communicate is based on the vocabulary we have available to us and you know for instance in the lesser bohemians there's a lot of sex mm. in that book and i really felt very strongly that the vocabulary available for writing about sex is completely inadequate it's mm. like <clears throat> because of censorship because of uh you know social m mores the sort of vocabulary available to write about sex is kind of some odd withered limb of a tree and the rest of the tree is the old language and vocabulary is sort of stretching, growing mm. out and, and there you've got sex and all you've got is kind of pumping and thrusting and mm. grinding and, mm. and, and all of those are completely phallocentric as well and mm. don't really, aren't mm. particularly useful way mm. for ways for women to talk about their sexual experience or their body and sexual experience. Um, and so, I, you know, it's, 
Well, I, want, yeah. I want to get on to, so I do want us to talk about sex, but mm. I'd like to just start. We all want to talk about yeah, sex. Yeah, that's why everyone's here. Um, <laughs> but I, I think for those three people in the audience who haven't read your book, it might be a good moment just to have a short reading. Okay. So, so it gives us something to ground the rest of the discussion in. Okay, I'll read a very short bit. Actually, I was going to read something else, and then I thought, oh, it's always good to put yourself in a slightly pressured situation on stage in front of strangers. So I'll read something <laughs> I've never read before anywhere, which is a section in the book when... So the, the book is about a, a, a teenage drama student and a, a much older actor and this kind of casual affair they fall into, which then becomes something much more until eventually they reach the point where he tells his life story in Dostoevskian fashion. And it all is pretty hair-raising. So there's a little section from this. Quiet we go, studying it. He stares at his own hand on the sheet. I watch his eyelashes blink to the twitch of his cheek. That's horrible, I say. I know, he agrees. Quiet again. Then he gets off the bed, walks around like ridding himself, lights another cigarette, while someone from the night beyond comes lumping up the stairs. Smoke hid, we wait as they find their key, go in and switch on their TV, but once they're settled, he says, if you want to leave, I'll sort you out a room in a hotel. And I imagine myself falling asleep on some clean white bed, safe from this, but still, I ask. Still, he says, prostitutes? No, Jesus, not for years. It was a short-lived thing, a year in the worst, and if I could take it back, I would. Here. He passes his cigarette, but shuts his eyes to the light while I smoke. It scares me, I say. I know, I can see. It was a terrible way to behave and way to be in. But looking down on me now, he looks so young and frightened. Together, at least in the fear of it, hedging round the light. Can I touch you, he says. Then I cannot think of anything I want more. So go put myself against him, feel him all around me. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, he says. I can't imagine what it's like for you to hear these things. And what it's like is I pushed my fingers right through his skin, caught hold of his ribs and must now fall with him down through the world while he grasps at everything. But we make the same rattling sound, I think, and so keep close together until we are calm, can let go finger by finger, then sit back down, person looking at person, like shy and new again. <laughs> On the page, the, 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 there's no separation of speech, um, other text, very few, I think I've counted them, very few commas. Mm. And then there's moments where the actual text reflecting thought, I think, um, gets smaller. So you're doing things on the page which um, are very different, just in terms of the, sh not just in terms of the, what you're trying to do, but the, the the way in which the, the words are laid out on the page, the, a, the whole action of language yeah. on the page. Yeah, I mean, I, d I don't think any of that is, is brand new, of course, but um, it was certainly a way of trying to, to map that whole experience onto the page, to, to map what I wanted to be happening or what I wanted the effect to be inside the reader mm. and to help them to see that on the page. So there are gaps where there's just nothing. Mm. And those are the idea of you know, the moment when you just can't really think about anything at all and you just, you're lost. Mm. 
and then you come back and you start again. Or, or when the, the when the the text gets very small, it's really it's it's the thought about the thought. Mm. It's the yes. moment of cringe, like the yes. And I'm just saying this. Oh God, why were just yeah. like this? Yeah. It's that, mm. and so it's it's really just trying to all the time create a fuller a fuller picture of who this person is on the inside. And it does that, and the thought about the thought thing also works because of the rhythm of it. The rhythm then is, is very clearly sensed. Even yeah. though it's not verse, you yeah. hear the rhythm in it. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, and that's really, the, because it looks, I mean, and Lesser Bohemian's less than a girl is a half on thing, but both books do look odd on the page when you mm. open them. They mm. don't, you know, there's the little short sentences and mm. full stops in all the wrong places. <clears throat> but I really felt that to have a strong rhythm would help just pull the reader in and pull them through the more difficult aspects of the book, both linguistically but also emotionally. There's mm. a lot of unpleasant things that happen to people. So it must be the case, this is uh, it's a stupid question, but it must be the case that you believe, with some conviction, that literature can sh show us, can map us, someone else's experience. That's what you're trying to do. Yes, I do. And I think, actually, that it can do that better than, than any other form. Mm. You know, I don't have a fight with filmmakers, but it allows you within in a way that nothing else does. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to show without and context the way nothing else does. You can do all of these things in literature. And, and I think with the rise of the internet and the sort of increasing depersonalization of the physical life and the physical experience, it's really important for literature to step up and to take on that. And because traditionally that's not really a role that you associate with literature, guiding the life of the body, but I think that it can. And it, it has a capacity to help us interact with each other in a much more profound way than, than a lot of other things that are available to us now, a lot of other forms, as well as things like social media. And so why then does it feel particularly important? What, it, what is our whole messy encounter as human beings and through literature in thinking about, talking about, honestly, about sex? and particularly the female sexual experience? Well, I mean, I think this, this is, you know, one of the most important conversations that we can be having at the moment is, is, is Why how is it we... Why important at the moment? How we, how we talk about sex, how we think about sex, how women particularly mm. think about sex. You know, we... I grew up in a, in a, in a society in which sex was, could not be spoken about in any regard. So in, the, in rural Ireland in the 1980s. And this is like plain, consenting, heterosexual, marital sex could not be spoken about in public. So absolutely nothing else, and no other kind of sexual preference could be spoken about, and certainly nothing, there could be no conversation about abuse. And, and so I'm, I'm very conscious of, although that world now doesn't really exist, certainly in, in rural Ireland anymore, of how long it took me to be able to think about the sexual experience and then to write about the sexual experience. And how dangerous that is for people to be so disconnected from this very fundamental part of life. Why dangerous? I think it's dangerous because, you know, we, we are not, um, we don't question that an eating disorder is a bad thing, that this has 
has you know, ter terrible effects on a person's life. But we don't talk about any kind of sexual disorders or even really just even sexual disorders. experience yes. it, with that kind of openness. So any other sort of fundamental function of the body, if something is going wrong with that, we don't question that that's something that should be investigated and explored. And, but sex is still governed by the people who don't want to talk about it at all, the people who can only talk about it by going, hee hee hee, Wiggins, or, or, or porn. Mm. And, and porn is kind of the point that we have to really deal with now, because I think, again, literature needs to step up, because otherwise porn gets to make the final decision of what human sexuality is going to be shaped like in the future. And for women, that is a very bleak future indeed. So how do you differentiate between pornography and writing about literature? Well, What's I mean, I think it's, it's very plain because there's the book is a lot, there's a lot of very graphic sex hmm. written in the book. But the difference between, I think, what I'm doing and pornography is pornography is written to achieve orgasm mm. in its viewer or mm. reader. That's, that's all it's there yes. for. Yes. That is not a conversation, a complex conversation about human sexuality. Mm. And it's also, it, it doesn't deal with sexuality as an integrated part of human life. Mm. And this is a big problem when it comes to sexuality generally, is that it's not seen as an integrated part of life, that everything that is happening in your life comes into that bedroom mm. with you, mm. and everything that happens in yes. that bedroom then goes out into the rest of the world with you. It's not something that just happens over there and doesn't affect anything else. And, but porn, you know, apart from the fact that there's also no humor in porn, right? <laughs> Whereas any kind of sexual experience fundamentally has an element of yes. ridiculousness to yeah. it. That, you know, a bit of hum humanity and a bit of vulnerability and a bit of humor has to, has to be part of that. But that's also not allowed to be. And, and mm. I think the, the sexuality that porn is inflicting on young people Yep. The idea of what sexuality should be, how they have to be, what their bodies have to look like, how they have to behave within those contexts, is catastrophic. So it we, can, we can catastrophic. say that pornography, both in terms of its intention, but yeah. also its it, it action and consequence, yeah. is very, very different to meaningfully trying to interrogate something that is fundamental yeah. to all of our existences, but is so suppressed, even... Yeah. You know, more so, in, interestingly, yeah. in a ostensibly very liberated. Well, you know, I think the fact that you can you can look at porn any time of the day, anywhere. Mm. You can be sitting on the bus looking on your mm. phone if you want. But this, but the fact that you know, if you are having some kind of sexual problem, you can't talk about it yeah. to anyone, or you can only talk about it within in a certain context, or with, you know, that this is just not widely discussed in society. But it's not even a sexual problem necessarily, is it? It's just even. Acknowledging Any kind versions of and norms yeah. um, and range, yeah. and how much of a hold it has on yeah. our every, you know, yeah. on our conscious selves. Yeah, but the, you know, I mean, you can see it all around. They just the battle, hmm. the battle for any kind of sexuality that isn't heterosexual to have a voice and to be considered equal is. I mean, it's still raging all around, and it's. I mean, it's better than when I was a child, which is homosexuality was a terrible thing and you know everyone was going to hell so now now we have homosexuals but okay we can have homosexuals and heterosexuals we can't have these bisexuals and, and then we can't have you know people who are who are transgender and we can't have you know all of this is every 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 single thing has to be fought for and it's it means that there's also just then a lot of basic stuff that 
we're not talking about yes. because we're so busy yes. trying to find an equality and to find a place in which everyone can talk. And it's not really, an, sadly, until that happens that we're really going to be able to tackle But the interesting else, thing here is the me men's response to this. Yeah? So the mm. male reviewers' response, not, yeah. not of course, not, not ubiquitously, but yeah. very audibly, um, in fact, sniggering, as you yep. described, or, you know, to the fact you were writing about sex. Yeah. They, what is that saying? What, what, tell me a bit about well, your I think, thoughts I mean, on their responses. Yeah, I mean, that, they, those kind of responses were universally from, from male reviewers. Hmm. Female so. reviewers really got the book yeah. and really understood it. And there were some actually very good and interesting reviews from men as well but <coughs> the sniggering was definitely you know the Sunday Times and Private Eye and all these people who were just couldn't really they just couldn't engage with sexuality uh, writing about sexuality it just was impossible to them it was like I just I can't I can't there, there was there was no they weren't even able to sort of complain about it or deconstruct it it was just this cannot be spoken about. This is not, it's not literature if we're talking about the body, if we're talking about the sexual body. So it was that or it was that you weren't quite meeting the, the male agenda around sexuality? Well, I think, I mean, the reaction I've had from male readers has been very interesting because I think a lot of them were interested in the male character and how he's someone who's become trapped and because men are also trapped by, by the perception of what masculinity should be and what and this kind of performed sexual sexuality that men are supposed to have. And the man in the book is someone who's been very promiscuous in his life and who also feels sort of destroyed by that experience, does not feel, although it's something that in the, in the world would be celebrated within himself, feels, you know, trapped and destroyed by that. Just say something about the protagonist in the first book, in Girl is Half Born Thing, has mm. a troubled relationship to yeah. her sexuality. Yeah. Um, and so early on in the book um, has a sexual encounter with her uncle that then resonates through her life but then mm -hmm. finds herself so she's in a really difficult domestic situation um, very unwell brother amazingly described relationship between the two of them ambivalent relationship but then you th but then sex becomes almost a means towards something for her that mm -hmm. isn't entirely conscious necessarily yeah. or owned or autonomous. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. say something about that and why you wanted to explore why she is that person. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, the, the, it's a sexual addiction problem at its you know, sort of basic level is that she, she uses sex as a means to, to escape her life, to escape the, the difficulties of the rest of her life. And as a result of, of, of the sexual abuse she experiences as a child, she uses it as a means of control. Mm. And, you know, and this is sort of what I was talking about before, about what's, what language is available mm. to you to talk about, to describe the sexual experience. And because she grows up in this religious conservative society, the only way she can think about herself after the experience of sexual abuse is as a, as a dirty object. Mm. There is no vocabulary there to talk mm. about that experience in any other way. She right. is responsible, right. she is complicit, yes. she is at fault, she is now flawed yes. as a result of that. And, there, and so she takes those ideas uh, about herself into how her own sexuality develops, that then, you know, it, it eats up her ability to, 
to understand what her sexuality would be without that experience. Yes. So as such, then, that is a very clearly, um, using the word, and, and ho in the mo hopefully the most authentic sense, that's a very feminist statement, because what you're saying there is something happened to her, society then, the way we've constructed society, conspires to then have a really, for her to then be landed with a really reductive label about what that is, yeah. rather than one that's, it, it can be interrogated and meaningful yeah, to absolutely. some point of redemption. And yeah. Um, yeah, and I, and I think that experience can be sort of extrapolated to most female experiences in Western culture, <laughs> is that there, everything has, is set up in a certain way for you to think about yourself, and it is so hard to get on the outside of that. And there, that's why so much has to be rewritten. There's so much work that has to be done with institutions, with everything. But even down to the fundamental language with which we speak about ourselves and think about ourselves, needs to be reworked, relooked at, interrogated. Could we have another quick reading? Is that possible? Another quick reading, yeah. Um, I'll maybe read slightly uh, less grim bit, which is at the end of this night. Uh, the two of them are asleep in bed. Could I grow up in a night, grow up in this day, curled here with him on his small bed, in the cradle of our arms and wrap of our legs, watching him deep in his deep dream, far the threat of what he's been while I lie here in love? So much, and sooner than I thought I'd be, years off I'd thought, and not like this, but I have come into my kingdom where only pens and pencils were, abrupt and all abrupt. No longer minnow in the darkness and the deep. Through the portals and currents I've been, going to the surface, up into the sun, touch my own throat, his long arm, shining like a body, come fresh into the light. And she is in the center of life. I am, I am her. Not unspun either, for what can it mean? more than how a life was lived, his breath gone peaceful in the tight and warm, twin mine to his, indifferent dreams, I hope, and list in their pooling through the dark, across books and wine glasses, over my bags, contenting us, while across the world she lies, his girl, who is not me. Does she love him like I would if he were mine that way? That other way, <clears throat> that other way I do not want. Tie up your long hair that the salt drops have wet. Being young, you have not known the fool's triumph, nor yet, nor yet love lost as soon as won. No, that's wrong. Only one here, not lost at all. And dread won't any more. For bound to him is what's to bind. And as for crying for the wind. It's a little bit of Yates plagiarism at the end there. I, I know that um, your own father died when you were quite young, mm -hmm. and you, you've talked about your response. You know, going to drama school in a way was a response to that, thinking as a as a means of what coping with it. Thinking I could move on past it, lose yourself in it. What was the well, I think I started, I mean, my father died when I was eight, and I started going to Saturday drama classes after that. And, um, and I became sort of increasingly obsessed with 
with that. And I think the idea of becoming an actress, of leaving that place, of going into a different world, what I perceive to be a much more open world, all of that was about closing the door on that past and on that grief and of feeling that I could uh, confine it within, to that within that time and place and say, okay, here's the bad thing that happened in my life and that's, that's, that's all over here and now the rest of my life is going to be out this way and it's all gonna be great and nothing terrible will ever happen to me again. And so it was, a, I suppose, those two things are sort of a me it was a means of controlling something that was uncontrollable. And that, but there was then there were other losses. Yes. Yeah, so then you know, just after I left drama school, my brother also died of cancer. Mm. Um, so that was a surprising turn of events for someone who thought that she had organised her life in which nothing bad would ever happen to her again. Um, but that, I mean, that changed me completely. It changed the way I thought about life, about what I wanted to do with my life, everything after that. Um, and is the writing in some way a response to that? Like not in a sort of cause and effect way, but it, you know, I found this, this quote, you quoted Kevin Barry, in fact, about how an early parental, or an early parental loss or death in the family almost m is, makes a writer. Now that can't always be true, but... Yeah. No, I think it's. I think what happens when some when you have a sort of a big event like that, um, especially a bereavement uh, as a young child, is that you there's a, suddenly a brick is pushed out of the wall that surrounds you that makes the world safe, and you can see out it, and you know that beyond there is a different life, <laughs> and that life is not what you think, and you don't. Also, you, I think I've never had that feeling that people describe of feeling indestructible. I've always felt very destructible. I've always been waiting for my body <laughs> to turn on me and do something terrible yeah. to me. Yeah, no, I know the feeling. Um, and is, do you think then the writing is, is it a palliative? Is it a, is it a way of escaping into another place or is it a means of understanding? Yeah, no, it's not, it's not a means of escape. Uh, that's for a different kind of writing. I think it is a, it's about trying to find a way to live in the world to be able to think about the world and to be able to not necessarily control it, but to, to place it somewhere that you feel able to live with. Thank you. I'm, I'm gonna have to stop us here, I'm afraid. I'm really <laughs> sorry, but I think, will you stay for a bit of lunch before you get in the taxi home? Okay. Will you? Yeah, so well, you're arranging the taxi. Yeah, I'm arranging it's the taxi on that. So <laughs> Ema will be outside for lunch for the next three hours. <laughs> well. Ema McBride. Thank you. Thank you.